Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast number 45. And to mix things around a bit, we have two interviews for you today, although one of them features two people, so maybe that counts as three. One is on Rabobank's latest report, Making Milk Cool Again, and the other is a look at what's coming up at Pack Expo in Las Vegas next month. And that's not forgetting our weekly look at the dairy markets with INTL FC Stone. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I'm desperately trying to think of interesting and exciting things that have happened this week, but I'm drawing a bit of a blank on that one, other than the frustration of technology breaking down at the worst possible times. But that happens to all of us at some point. I do remember in the very early days of publishing on a computer, this would be in the early 1990s, being editor of a music magazine and having the computer crash the night before going to press. And this was in the days before backups and autosave. This was in the days of floppy disks, both sizes. So everything was gone. And you just kind of look at the blank screen and tap a few keys and think it's all somehow going to magically come back when you reopen the program. And it doesn't. And still these things happen. The blue screen of death when a PC crashes, or the spinning wheel of death as it's called on a Mac. And as I use both on a daily basis, I'm very familiar with both of them. Anyway, let's move away from the negative before my microphone decides to start playing tricks on me. The summer in this region is starting to slip away. School starts again next week and the latter part of the year means the events start up again. And I'll be headed to a few, the first of which being Anuga in Cologne, or Köln, to give it its proper name, in Germany in October. It's been a busy dairy week, as some of the news we've had on DairyReporter.com shows, and I'll run through just a few of them in case you miss them and want to learn more. Land O'Lakes has rebranded its non-profit to become Venture 37. A Philadelphia cream cheese ad in the UK has become one of the first two commercials to be banned by the Advertising Standards Authority over gender stereotyping. Kazakhstan is pushing ahead with a dairy roadmap, and Brazilian researchers have turned dairy, rice and passion fruit waste into a breakfast cereal. In Australia, researchers have discovered that feed made from a certain seaweed may help cows be a little less gassy. You can make up your own ponds there, which means less methane in the air. And Meng Yu continues expansion plans in Uruguay. In trade talks with Australia, the EU is pushing for dairy names protection, and some are not best pleased at the idea in Australia. And Fonterra isn't going to pay a dividend in 2019. And of course, there are plenty more articles for you to read on DairyReporter.com as well. Some weekend reading for you if the weather is going to be as rotten where you are as it is supposed to be here. And so, on with the show. This week's first guest is Thomas Bailey, Executive Director of Dairy Research at Rabobank North America, who chatted with our very own Beth Newhart about Rabobank's latest report, Making Milk Cool Again. It's a mixed report in that it looks at declining milk sales, but it's not all bleak, and the future can be a bright one. So, the report is effectively a a rebuttal to the alternative dairy report, which I did last year, Dare Not to Dairy, um, looking at how milk is out of favor with consumers in developed markets like the U.S. and the EU. Sales are in uh, prolonged contraction, down about 2% CAGR for at least the last decade, um, and as we well know, much longer than that. 
Um, why is this happening? Well, consumers have changed, uh, looking for more exciting, uh, sustainable products. You know, taste um, is paramount, premiumization. And meanwhile, the dairy industry and what we're you know, seeing as far as fluid milk products on the shelf uh, go has not innovated along with the shifts in consumers. So that's you know, been a bit of a miss. Um, and where we have seen innovation uh, from fluid milk products, we have seen uh, traction with the consumers. But the problem is it's difficult for the fluid milk players to come back uh, given that you, know, you kind of get caught in this downward spiral of margin compression where you're obligated to, to meet private label you know, contract manufacturing supply agreements, uh, which is very low returning and at times negative margins because private label retailers use milk as a key selling point to bring foot traffic through. And so milk kind of suffers a little bit to that degree. But it's important for manufacturers to, to supply that um, for economies of scale. And then you also have the rise of competition, alternative dairy, outspending traditional dairy by a significant uh, margin in terms of branding and marketing. So very tough competition there. And then the sustainability side of, of ensuring the well-being and welfare of the animals is also something that people are increasingly concerned about. So some difficult challenges there that we look at in the report. Um, but there have definitely been some success stories to date where we have seen dairy products, dairy fluid milks, outpacing the alternatives uh, significantly. So uh, to date, you know, Fairlife is one of those that we talk about a lot in the report. Yes, they have some um, issues that have come to uh, light as of late, um, but we'll, you know, time will tell how that pans out. But I think that they're uh, handling it pretty well so far. But they are an example of just the massive success you can have you know, starting from basically not, not even present in the market just over five years ago to accounting for almost 3% of the fluid milk category today. That's significant growth. We've also seen other milks that are differentiating, um, such as A2 milk doing very well internationally and now launching in the U.S. and starting to get traction here. Um, so milk does have a lot going for it. You know, from the nutritional standpoint, that's still very important. Uh, it tests better than the alternatives from a taste standpoint. Um, it's a simple product uh, with clean, you know, natural, uh, clean label uh, ingredients, um, and it's highly functional uh, for usage outside of simply drinking it. It works well with a lot of other products, you know, coffee just being one of many. Um, so what needs to happen? The first thing is remember uh, that we are in the FMCG pay, uh, space, so fast-moving consumer goods. This is a highly competitive place. There's no room for complacency. You have to adjust with the times and the consumer trends. So that's paramount. Um, brand and product development fall in from there. You need to make sure that you have brands that align with what consumers are looking for, and you need to have the products that meet the taste um, and premiumization requirements that people want also. And then follow up with communication, transparency, and marketing to really push the brand and the, and the product that you have. And then all around that, we're probably going to need to see more plant investments uh, for processors of milk and new processors of milk to include you know, upgrading to things like extended shelf life or even UHT milks uh, in some cases to kind of dif help differentiate um, and also ensure that you kind of have the, some of the latest processing equipment available. Um, will be will be important. So in short, uh, milk has a very long history uh, with within Western diets, uh, and it has been there for for good reason. It has a lot going for it. We've seen some processors uh, and manufacturers of milk get the story right, um, and they've been very successful. And I think that we're going to see more to come.
The report highlights a lot of different challenges. So is it really worth it for some of these companies? I mean, should they be diversifying their portfolio with alternative products like non-dairy milks or ultra-filtered milks like you mentioned? Well, I think the point is I, there are options. You're not, you shouldn't just feel trapped or be trapped. The, the way the market is now, um, being different is a good thing. Uh, so if you, if you have the capability to differentiate, I think that, that you know, in, this, in this marketplace, actually, the, the risk might not be as high as it, as it sounds because people do want to try something different. Um, whether it's dairy alternatives, I don't know if you have to go down that road, but you, you know, looking at some way of setting your milk uh, you know, separate from conventional private label milks uh, is you know, something to look into. And with all the competition and the, the retail price wars, that usually means lower prices for the dairy farmers. So what do you think is their key to survival in all of this? So the dairy farmers, unfortunately, are kind of at the, the whim of their milk flow. Uh, and, and we have seen the rise of these private labels. You know, private labels are, in the U.S. are over 50% of milk sales um, or around that number. And the private label, like I said, private label is the retailer's way of bringing foot traffic through because 85% of Americans still have milk in their fridge. So it's very important to retailers to make sure that, you know, to, to use that penetration um, to their advantage, and they, they price milk knowing that people are going to come for milk and buy other groceries. So they price it low uh, and erode margins, and, and ultimately it's the rest of the supply chain and, and the farmer who's receiving a lower milk price because of that. Where we have seen premiumization of milks, we see margins substantially higher, um, uh, well above 20% at times for those types of milks. And then that that can go back to the farmer. So if the farmer is in a channel where they're, you know, their milk is going into that type of product, they could be doing a little bit, quite a bit better than one where their milk is being pooled into a private label um, agreement. But, you know, that being said, the majority of milk is still going into these conventional products. And I'm not saying the entire industry is going to flip and, and become premium, um, but if you can get your, way, your milk into that, there are certainly some margins to be, to be seen, some better milk prices to be paid. What about um, regionally, you know, in global emerging markets like the Asia-Pacific region, um, you know, if they need imports, is there the potential for these markets to to generate their own products or will, you know, the imports always be a requirement? Yeah, so that's another key premise of the opportunity. So in the longer term outlook, these markets, like let's say China, uh, which we talk about all too often and say the trade wars have been resolved and we're, we're friends again with China. They are around 70% self-sufficient or something in that, in that range. Uh, and we, we don't anticipate they have the cost of productions and efficiencies locally uh, or emphasis on growing milk supply. That means that it'll ever be 100% self-sufficient. So as demand continues to grow there, they're going to any incremental demand um, will also mean incremental uh, gap in self-sufficiency. So they're going to have to bring that in from somewhere. Yeah, they're bringing in a little bit now, and, and it's a bit lumpy as far as their import requirements go. But if we go 10 years down the road, we expect that that gap for you know imports will be much higher. And they're going to be looking at bringing in uh, more fresh milk because that, that will be even a wider gap, or fresh or UHT milks. Um, and fresh milk could be a real challenge, but maybe extended shelf life of some, some nature. But at the end of the day, the, the point is that 
they will need to import more milk, um, and they will want more fluid milk of some variety. And if we have established uh, lines and manufacturing and brands here in the States, um, it's a much easier you know, to sell that milk into China than it is to, I guess, you know, start up locally because it's going to be a big challenge um, locally. Um, so, you know, maybe it's not necessarily like what we've seen Coke go global, but maybe something, you know, maybe it might be, not be too, too big of a stretch to imagine a milk that does kind of um, have a global brand of sorts um, to, to start to fill those gaps that develop in, around the world, particularly in developing markets that don't have much of a traditional milk supply. And to that end, some other countries are moving to include more sustainability information on their product labels. So is that something that you see um, you know, happening more in the U.S.? And how do you think that would affect milk producers here? Yeah, so that is, that is something we're seeing. We've seen a lot of it in the EU, a lot of it in New Zealand and Australia. Um, and we know in the States that sustainability um, is a, bro- well, it's a broad term and a lot of things fall underneath it. But it is, from the, the studies and the research we've done, a key determining factor of people's interest in the product. For the consumers that are concerned with it, the growing number of consumers that are concerned with it, because there's still a large number that, are, that really aren't too sensitive to it, but the ones that are leaving fluid milk and are shifting, putting their money elsewhere, sustainability is a, a key term. Um, it's something to look into. And so if you want to bring them back and if you want to have one of these milks that's going to be a home run and a, and a strong brand, sustainability will be, will be key to it. And that, that's going to mean any, any number of things, uh, including more transparency along the supply chain So, and more audits along the supply chain. So dairy farmers could be impacted directly from that. Um, and they're going to need to ensure that you know, a certain amount of um, sustainability, and that could mean you know, more natural farming methods the, the point is there will be more eyes on the dairy farmer and scrutiny, scrutiny of them to meet these sustainable um, requirements that they're going to need to be open to it and, and compliant to the degree that they want to have their milk going into those channels. Um, and so it could mean any number of, of, of requirements. It's a trend around the world. It's present here in the States. And I think that it's going to continue to be very prevalent and, um, and increasing um, in focus. Consumers have changed, and the, and the milk um, has not so much. So we've got, you know, are still our gallon jugs. If we, let's take our consumer first, our modern millennial consumer, um, who we're all kind of chasing because they're willing to pay such massive premiums for products that they love. And, and they are looking for clean label, nutritional, on-the-go, um, sustainable products. And what we typically see on the retail shelf in the States is a gallon jug of private label milk. Now, that does not speak to them, that there's no interest from that millennial consumer. Um, we have seen some milks like Fairlife or like, you know, different A2, you know, a milk like an A2 or Lewis Road, like I said, in New Zealand. Um, the, these ones do communicate and connect with this kind of more modern consumer. And so we, where we have seen the dairy industry adjust, uh, we've seen some great wins on some great success stories. We've seen um, a consumer who buys milk at a said grocery store is also going to buy more of their groceries from that same grocery store. So if you go in to your local Kroger, for example, and you get your milk there, you're also going to buy a bunch of other things Um, versus a a consumer who's not buying their milk there. They typically don't buy as much other groceries. 
it's a continuation of a long-seated trend, but a reemphasis of the importance of milk to retailers. We're not talking about all milks changing. We're not talking about all consumers needing to be, all their demands needing to be met. There's still a large share of consumers who aren't as sensitive to these trends, and they're going to continue to pay bare minimum for their milk. The point is, if you want a higher margin and you want to go uh, into a higher end of, of returns, you're going to have to change the, the product that's being um, supplied to them. If you do attempt to do it, the cases that we've looked at show that there's there are good returns to be had and some very effective uh, success stories. Um, there's a long road ahead uh, and challenges remain, but you know milk is still there and will continue to be there in, in consumers' fridges here in the States. One of the biggest events around, and certainly most entertaining, is PAC Expo, put on each year by PMMI, which is coming up very soon in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is so big it probably needs its own zip code. To discover all the exciting things happening at this year's event, I chatted with PMMI's Laura Thompson, Vice President of Trade Shows, and Jorge Izquierdo, Vice President, Market Development. I actually chatted to them several times as we had some technology issues, which used to be known as a bad phone line. I have no idea what the issues were, but both Jorge and Laura were very patient and we finally got them sorted out. We're excited about this year's Pack Expo Las Vegas and Healthcare Packaging Expo. It's, it's going to be our biggest yet. Uh, we're expecting over, about 2,000 exhibitors covering about 900,000 net square feet of exhibits. These exhibitors offer solutions for pretty much every vertical market. So anybody who's looking for any packaging solution, regardless of their product, will be able to find it at the show. Uh, we're expecting about 30,000 attendees to come to the show this year. One thing we're really excited about this year is we have this new robotic zone um, that will be in the North Hall. You know, there's a lot going on right now with automation, so we wanted to create a fun, interactive space to highlight um, automation as well as find kind of some, a new angle on it. Um, we're working with an organization called Backpacks for Kids, and we have uh, six companies that have developed their own specific solutions to fill bags of food for kids on the weekends. So there's a, a charitable aspect to it as well as a way for each company to kind of showcase their unique solution on, on how to do this. Um, in addition to the, the robots fighting hunger display, we'll have the Future Innovators Robotics Showcase as well, which um, is another feature we're excited about because we bring in high school teams to show their solutions um, to problems and display kind of their what what they've been working on all year and, and education is, is a key key focus for us so we're always excited to get the kids to the show uh, while they're there in addition to, to showcasing as part of the future innovators robotics showcase we also schedule show tours for them so they can kind of see and, and check everything out so I would say that the robotics show showcase is kind of our biggest newest feature that, that we're going to have at the show this year all right. And as far as the robotics goes, are you are you able to use the robotics to get people around? Because I know it's such a huge venue, isn't it? <laughs> 
we haven't quite gone that far to get the uh, the robotics to to get people uh, around the show. Maybe next year, but yeah, so that's we'll, a good idea. We'll, we'll put that on our to-do list for next year. Sure. Well, and, and I imagine that even in the space of a year, technologies change. So that must be quite exciting in that respect. Uh, you know, when you talk about robotics, it's uh, for sure that's what's happening. You know, it's, uh, it seems from show to show, you know, there are new innovations, new technologies. Like uh, one of the things we're finding lately, you know, in, in terms of the robotics and the food space is more and more of the robots and the end of farm tooling is now kind of uh, uh, more hygienic friendly, more it's easier to wash down. So more and more of those technologies are being adopted not just uh, on the packaging side, but also on the processing side of, uh, of the business. We it was talking also about uh, cobots and, and how there's uh, an increased uh, use of, uh, of cobots as well in the industry, kind of uh, bringing a significant amount of flexibility for uh, some of the processes uh, in the industry. So. Absolutely, yes, you know, certainly uh, robotics is one of the highlights at uh, PAC Expo. And uh, I think we're going to have a, a full spectrum of applications on uh, display for the attendees. Yes, during in that robotics zone, we will have all of those items, those trends that Jorge mentioned featured. I, I imagine as well that that's really exciting for visitors to come in and see something that's so cutting edge. You know, one of the what's uh, very cool about the application that Laura was talking about is is the fact that uh, there will be some uh, within the uh, the robotic demonstration. There will be some a part of the process will uh, will be using uh, artificial intelligence in terms of uh, identifying patterns and uh, improving the way the the robots perform and uh, operate during the the process of uh, making these food sets. And I, I assume at events like this as well, I know I go to a lot of events myself and they're just, a lot of them are very static, but this one, obviously there's a lot of interactivity and a lot to see as well as just talking with people. You know, you know, Jim, one of the things we're very proud of uh, is the amount of equipment that we have moving and working and uh, that the, uh, our exhibitors are demonstrating on the floor. That, that's really our, the, the highlight of our show. As far as the dairy industry is concerned, what other highlights would there be? Obviously, there's going to be all kinds of things for small companies as well as large companies, I would suspect. Yes, you know, uh, one of the highlights in many industries and certainly for dairy is innovation. Uh, there's a lot of innovation in the industry around uh, both the processing and uh, the packaging. When you look at consumer trends, you know, at, uh, the demands for uh, convenience, uh, health and wellness, uh, premiumization, all of those, you know, have, uh, offer a lot of opportunities for brand owners to differentiate their products and, uh, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, use packaging as part of that process of differentiation. The whole thing is driven in some respects by what consumers are demanding and sustainability and recyclability. They seem to be very high on the agenda at the moment. I assume that that's also reflected in, in the show. Absolutely. Uh, you, in, I guess in, in many aspects, when you're talking about 
the materials that are being used, uh, thinking on uh, recycled, uh, recycled versus recyclable, uh, compostable, uh, degradable, what kind of uh, the technologies uh, to fill the products. Also, when you, when you think about different shapes of the containers, uh, what we're finding that's very interesting, you know, some of the brands have been moving from, uh, actually in the dairy industry, from the traditional uh, kind of uh, square bottle to round bottles because they're cutting on the amount of material they're using. They're using materials like our pet, you know, recycled pet for the bottles. So absolutely, yes, you know, it's, uh, those are the type of things uh, that you're going to find at the show. Uh, opportunities for manufacturers to differentiate themselves again, you know, to say my product is uh, packed on a recycled bottle or it's, uh, it's recyclable or it's uh, biodegradable. Absolutely, those are some of the, the highlights of uh, what the consumers are looking for. And, and I know that the show in the past, and I assume now is also, there's a very large educational component to it. Yes, we do, once again, offer our free show floor education. We have four innovation stages again, and we also are bringing the forum to Vegas, which is a, what we've had success with at, at some of our other shows. This is more of an interactive stage where people can can talk and share ideas about kind of some of the latest trends in, in the industry. And these are all conveniently located on the show floor, really easy for people to pop into. Uh, they range from 30 to 45 minutes, provide a, a good snapshot of, you know, the, the topic at hand and, and then allow people to continue to walk the show floor and, and see what they need. Um, and Jorge, I think you had mentioned there is, we have a good dairy option. Yeah, it's, uh, actually we have uh, several. One that uh, I, I have pop on my mind right now is uh, we have one on sanitary design and it's focused on uh, how dairy processors can meet tighter uh, food safety modernization act requirements. So, so again, this is, uh, there's a lot of focus on uh, food and dairy industry. When there's an awful lot going on at an event like this one, how do you balance the logistics of putting all this together and keeping it balanced so that people can see everything and do everything all in a space of just a couple of days? Well, one reason why we do have these show floor presentations is they are not a huge time commitment and they are within the show floor. So they can pick a topic that they find of interest to them, attend the session, and then continue about what they need to do um, on the show floor. We do offer some pre-show and at-show planning tools to really help people. And, and with a show the size and scope of PAC Expo, we do recommend planning in advance. It can really help people to maximize their time at the show and, and, and find what they need. On our website, we have our My Show Planner where people can search by specific industry, keyword, or even a product category. If they're looking for a particular type of machine, they can put that in and, and it'll bring up the exhibitors that provide that solution. We also have a mobile app 
that people can download now or when they get to the show that offers the, the same type of information and both are, are connected to each other. People can make a plan and map out their show. They also can search education sessions so they will have an idea of, of the sessions they want to attend and will be able to plan accordingly. So, so we try to do what we can to get people the information in advance, make it easily searchable so that they can maximize their time when they're at the show. And there are generally quite a lot of product launches at Pack Expo. Is that the case again this year? Oh, yes. Uh, many of the things that uh, you're going to find at the event are uh, product launches in terms of uh, packaging itself. For example, closures uh, for flexible packaging, uh, materials uh, for both flexible and rigid packaging. And of course, uh, in terms of technology, technology to add flexibility, uh, quick changeover, and increase productivity uh, for manufacturers. Uh, many of the, of the trends we're finding, many of the offerings really, are going to be uh, towards uh, extending shelf life. Some of those might not be new technologies, but just the way they are doing, they are much more affordable than they were uh, in the past, uh, these technologies. Uh, and I'm talking technologies like uh, modify atmosphere, uh, vacuum packaging, uh, high pressure processing. Also, you know, uh, you're going to find, uh, and I guess that's that's really kind of the the highlight of the of the show. You know, more than anything, when you are implementing all these new technologies, it's not just about uh, the equipment. It's about uh, the supplier. It's about developing this relationship, this partnership with your suppliers, so they can help you uh, implement uh, these technologies and increase your productivity and reliability. I guess with an event of this size, companies maybe even hold off on product launches so that they can launch them at the event? Yes, definitely. Exhibitors do plan to, to launch um, new products at the event. We also have a couple of features where we try to highlight some new and exciting packages as well as technology. We have our showcase of packaging innovations where we highlight award winners from about a dozen leading industry associations. So this is a designated space in the show floor where exhibitor, or, I mean, attendees can visit and see all of these winners and, and the latest and newest innovations in materials uh, on display. We also uh, just last year launched our Technology Excellence Awards where we have exhibitors send us new products that they will be featuring at the show. And in fact, we have just narrowed down the group of finalists that are being notified today, and we'll be announcing the finalists next week with attendees having the option to visit them as well as vote on winners in each category during the show. Very good. And is there any dairy components to that? There is a beverage and dairy category. And could you give me details on the timing and any other details about the show itself? It's three days. It's September 23rd to the 25th. Uh, these show hours are 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. daily. Anybody who wants to attend the show, uh, we do have our discount deadline approaching August 30th. So as long as they register before August 30th, they will be able to register for $30. For $30, this gives them access to the show floor and all the free show floor education. Um, after August 30th, the, the price does increase to $100. And the website is just packexpolasvegas.com. 
And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Butter continued the pattern we have seen in alternative weeks where a price drop is followed by a week of stability, followed by another week of a price drop. This week was a stable week with prices for August and September continuing around 34.50-34.75 level. Quarter 4 was up slightly to 36.40 and quarter 1 continued to trade around the 3700 level. Skimmel powder has its has had its first uh, negative week in a pattern that has been almost stable or slightly well supported over the last few weeks. Uh, quarter four off the twenty two fifteen level to trade more around the twenty one eighty level, and quarter one down about forty euros to twenty two ten from twenty two fifty. August and Sep of twenty nineteen has been relatively stable at the twenty one seventy level. The sell-off uh, seems to have been worrying the trade regarding a cut off in the large volumes of powder this year being bought out of Malaysia. Uh, The concern is that this demand has been jeopardised by retaliatory tariff action from Malaysia following the EU tariff on palm oil. Also, circumstances were exacerbated by the devaluing of the Argentinian peso, which on the back of their record uh, market sell-off could lead to cheaper Argentinian powder supply. Huey was off slightly, uh, trading around the 660 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed it and have already downloaded that Rabobank report and registered early for the Pack Expo to save some money. Next week, we hope to bring you another event preview and we'll see what else. There's definitely never a shortage of newsworthy things to talk about in the dairy industry, that's for sure. So have a great weekend and week ahead. And as always, thanks for listening.